Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. Will Joe Biden's Democratic Party blow up his vision for America's future? Let's get to the bottom line. With the Democrats in control of the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, with razor-thin margins but still the majority, why is it so hard for them to agree on an agenda for the country? U.S. President Joe Biden's massive Build Back Better Act exposed the major rift in the Democratic Party. The act calls for the rich to pay more taxes, fights global warming, and makes education more accessible. With that agenda, you'd expect the Republicans to be fighting it. But lo and behold, it's Joe Biden's own party that he has to worry about. Democratic moderates don't want to go too far. They don't want to spend too much. And progressives are wondering why they aren't going further. They wonder out loud what the Republicans would do if they had the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to control the legislative agenda. Meanwhile, the Republicans have been able to sit back and watch the fireworks as the Democratic Party wages a tug-of-war with itself. So what does the future hold for the Democratic coalition and for relations between its left wing and its middle? We're going to look at both sides of the coin today, and we'll start with Faz Shakir, political advisor to one of the most famous progressives in the Senate, Bernie Sanders of Vermont. He's the founder of A More Perfect Union, which advocates for progressive policies in the United States. Faz, it's great to be with you. Let me just start out and ask, you know, right now we're kind of at a fevered pitch in this divide uh, between House and Senate progressives and House and Senate uh, uh, moderates, if you call them, or conservatives within the Democratic Party. And I guess my question to you is, to, you know, working and knowing Bernie Sanders, who nearly became, and, and I remind people this, could have begin, become president of the United States, how deep is that division and divide within the party? Right. I mean, it exists. <laughs> We're seeing it play out. But it's actually a divide that is tilting in one direction, Steve. It is tilting towards the progressives. So if you look at the composition of the House and the Senate, you have upwards of 95 percent of the members and the Democratic Party in both the House and the Senate who are very much aligned with President Biden and Bernie Sanders on this one. But there's this small minority faction, uh, a vestige, I think, of the recent decades of a corporate-friendly approach, a neoliberal approach, some might call it, uh, that is hesitant to make some of the deep structural changes that I think we need to do. I mean, so so we, that, that ideological fissure is playing out. Uh, and the fight is over whether we deliver a bill that would benefit working Americans. That, that's, what, that's what's transformative about this bill. 100% of its benefits would go to work, working Americans in the form of child tax uh, cuts or uh, child care, home health care, paid leave, uh, free community college, things that would really reduce prescription drugs, things that would really make an impact for people who are suffering on the bottom half of the class divide in America. And so the fight is over whether those who are doing quite well feel any empathy or solidarity with those who are not doing well. What is an acceptable investment now? Um, is there any wiggle room, given where we are now, or are we at the bare minimum in what Joe Biden has put forward? Well, when you take the priorities and you just add them up, I, you know, Senator Sanders put out a $6 trillion proposal, said if you really are serious about climate change over the next 10 years and doing something about it, child care, free community college, reducing prescription drugs, you go down the line of all of the benefits in this bill. And you say you add them up and you want to do them for real, it's $6 trillion. Now, obviously, Senator Sanders is also a pragmatist. He, he has worked in this Senate for a long period of time. He understands his colleagues and says, OK, there's got to be a negotiation. Uh, you, you know, in, in the negotiation midpoint, in this case, isn't being driven by President Bernie Sanders. It is going to be driven by President Joe Biden. So let's figure out where is the president's agenda? What are the things that he campaigned on, that he made promises on? 
And then let's deliver that. And the president came forward and said, three and a half trillion. Yep, that sounds about right. That's where I think all of the things that we I promised to the American public, I can deliver on at that number. And voila, you've got basically everybody in the Senate and the House generally agreeing to it, except for a couple of Senate holdouts. And, you know, this uh, President Biden, unfortunately, has had to spend hours and hours over the past two days trying to wrangle Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia as the last two holdouts. They really, they are dictating the debate. And, and my frustration is that those two individuals did not run for president of the United States. They, they did not throw their hat in the ring. President Joe Biden did. And it is. It, I believe that we should play politics as a team sport here. We should legislate as a team and follow the president's example and, and follow his lead, quite frankly. And that is what the progressives are actually holding to. So, I mean, we would obviously want to go higher and bolder than what President Biden has announced. But at the very least, it, is, it, is, it seems like our responsibility to at least say, let's do what the president says. You know, look, I, this may be an unfair question, but you and I both know that the Senate is a peculiar place. And, you know, sometimes the feistiness up front, you know, is, 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 is replaced by, you know, behind the scenes, people get along quite well. Has Bernie Sanders, has Senator Sanders worked on Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema? Has he gone on the, the famous Joe Manchin boat? Have they tried to find ways outside this divide to say, hey, you know, let, let's get beyond this and find other things? What is the nature of the politicking uh, behind the scenes that we may not be privy to uh, that, that are either hopeful or not. Yeah, so uh, first of all, Bernie Sanders hasn't gotten on Joe Manchin's boat or any other boat uh, because he's not a big socializer of that kind. <laughs> However, don't take that to mean that the, he isn't in conversation with Joe Manchin. For sure, that is the case. He has been talking to Joe Manchin on the Senate floor and in a lot of other venues over the past few months. Uh, they have been candid with each other about their disagreements. But, you know, Senator Sanders has been very clear. I, I supported you to be here in this caucus for, for Senate because I understand that we need a senator from West Virginia, a Democratic senator from West Virginia. We need to hold the majority, but we also have to deliver. So, Joe, like, at, at least be a good negotiating partner in good faith. Meet me to where you think you can go. And, uh, you know, to his frustration, to Senator Sanders' frustration, you know, there hasn't been a lot of meat to the bones. I mean, he's asking, you know, what are the details? What are the things that you would support? What are the things that you wouldn't support? And, and that hasn't come out. So Senator Sanders' view has been, well, if President Biden and if Senator Schumer, the majority leader, can do, a, you know, a job on trying to bring Joe Manchin along, he's also happy for that to be the case. Sometimes maybe other people might be better messengers with, with Joe Manchin. In any case, Let's just get a deal done. I mean, when process mechanics are have been going on for so long, people are frustrated about it. Increasingly, you see the poll numbers of Joe Biden dipping because there's just annoyance that, you know, we put you in power. Let's let's see the fruits of that. And I hope that something can get done soon. So, look, I have this, this job where I talk to everybody. I talk to Republicans, different dimensions of it, Democrats, different dimensions. The Republicans I talk to say they've got their fork and knives out waiting for the 2022 election. What are the consequences what <laughs> of what? I'm sorry. What else is new? right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, and they've been kind of left out of, you know, a, a lot of this divide. Right. So the battle is between wings of the Democratic Party rather than between Republicans and Democrats on this. But when it comes to the election, they're hoping the dysfunction that is that is evident right now about the vision and aspirations of the Democratic Party is something that they can run against. Is that a good strategy from your viewpoint for Republicans? What are the consequences about, about um, one side or the other, Joe Manchin or, or, or the progressive wing of the party winning? What, what are the electoral dimensions of this for 2022? 
Yeah, well, so two, two points on this, Steve. One is, think about in the last presidency of Donald Trump on legislating, how did it work? Remember, it was Senate Republicans as a majority party for some of that who were saying, hey, let's just deliver on the things that Donald Trump wants. So they went through reconciliation and they passed huge tax cuts. They passed a ton of judicial nominees and they delivered on many of the things that President Trump wanted because they were in the majority in the Senate and in the House. And that, right, that what is good for the goose should be good for the gander here. Now Democrats are in power and they should be able to deliver for their president of the United States. Now, I think as you flash forward to 2022, you're right to say that the Republican strategy with Trump off of the ballot is really kind of leaning on making people cynical, skeptical, uh, upset over dysfunction in D.C. That is, after all, how Donald Trump himself got elected. He is railing against drain the swamp and, and making people feel like government just doesn't work. It's screwed up. And Democrats, as the party that has generally believed in the public good and the public utility, are the ones having to make the argument that government can work. And so that, that is the fight right now, is that we have this opportunity. We did it during COVID, right, over this last year. There's been checks that went out to the American public. There are shots in arms. There are good things happening on, on some scores. Now is the opportunity to address the structural inequities in American society and show the Democrats are willing to take on fights against big corporate actors and deliver for the American public. I think it would do a hell of a lot of good for the Democratic brand heading into 2022 when you are the party associated with hey, they believe in government. They say it should do good things for me. Let's see it. Did it happen or did it not happen? Look, I just shared with our audience how razor thin uh, Democratic control of both chambers of Congress uh, really is today. And so when you look at that, you know, on one hand, I sort of, I'll, I'll ask this, you know, on the other half of the coin when I talk this, you know, that, that, that Bernie Sanders uh, is where he is in the Budget Committee. Joe Manchin is where he is in the uh, 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 Energy Committee. Uh, other committees, resources, power is part of that but would you be willing, would the progressive wing be willing to say, hey, we need to, you know, purge the party of this and accept a minority status in this to basically get a greater coalescence, if you will, around shared principles? Or do you think there's got to be some give and take so that you can you can talk to um, Democrats in West Virginia, Arizona and others that may feel, you know, that they need to be in a slightly more moderate position? How do you deal with the size of the tent? So I mean, these are all good questions. I start from the premise, here are my principles, at least in how we navigate this. It'd be one thing if progressives were pushing things that are deeply unpopular in West Virginia and Arizona. In fact, we're giving Joe Manchin a gift. If you want to go and poll, reducing prescription drug prices, expanding childcare, expanding home care, expanding, uh, you know, taking on a whole bunch of new climate jobs, if you want to go poll all of those things, in West Virginia, show me the results because I promise you they will do quite well. And so what we're offering is an agenda that I don't think is politically detrimental to the case in West Virginia and in Arizona. That being said, we also have to reach agreement. And even in trying to reach that agreement, if you look at the rest of this caucus, you have people like John Tester from Montana, you, know, you, you Mark Warner, a conservative Democrat from Virginia, you have all kinds of voices and all of them to a person have found a place of collegiality and agreement. And it is really just now two people who are hijacking, in my view, 
the agenda that isn't for them to dictate because it should be the president. If, they, if you are of the Democratic Party, you have a Democratic president, you negotiate with them and you agree, hey, this president made certain commitments. He ran for office. He promised these things. Now we have to deliver on them. And again, like I say, these aren't, these aren't even hard votes. These are very politically popular. If you ask people in West Virginia, do you think the, the wealthy are not paying their fair share? Are they trying to skirt taxes? Should we make them pay their fair share? Of course, it's going to be off the charts. And so that, that is my frustration. We've offered both a popular agenda, we've offered the compromise, and we've offered the presence of the United States to say this is where the deal is, and yet you have two people, in, in my mind, wrongfully trying to hijack it. Do issues of inflation or you know, increasing the size of the debt matter in the Progressive Caucus, or do they say, hey, look what Donald Trump did uh, in terms of this, and we just need to not be aware of those elements of economic gravity down the road? Unfortunately, and I hate to say this, Steve, it's a dishonest debate. I mean, I think Joe Manchin knows that, because if you want to worry about inflation, he's tying it to, oh, there's a, a lot of spending here. Well, yes, there's $3.5 on the table over 10 years, but guess what, Steve? That is all paid for. It is all paid for through making the wealthy pay their fair share, and there are a whole host of ways, including you know cap gains, the individual tax rate, corporate tax rate, make, uh, increasing IRS enforcement. There are a whole variety of options on the table that pay for the full expenditure. So there is no impact on this inflation that we're talking about. And in my mind, when I hear the words inflation, labor shortage, I hear people wanting to espouse arguments of the corporate class. As, as, as specious arguments of the corporate class that say, oh, we don't like this stuff that you guys are doing. That The corporate class is fine with increased defense spending and not paying for that. Right? In fact, we got a bill that's right up in front of uh, Senate right now, $770 billion. And if you want to project that out over 10 years, that's double what we're putting on the table for working people. And so in my mind, you got a lot of dishonest debate about this. You have a corporate class, oh, we got a labor shortage. Well, in my mind, no, we have labor demand. We have people out there who are struggling saying, I'm not getting a fair wage at my workplace. And you know what could help me? Childcare at home, because then I could maybe take this job. If you want to increase my wages, that would help a lot. If you could help me take care of my ailing parents, that would help a lot. If you could reduce my prescription drugs, that would help a lot. I see a class divide going on in this debate, Steve. People who are doing quite well are making specious arguments, and we're having to fight basically for the a lobby of the American people, as it were, because they don't have a voice in this debate. And unfortunately, I think the, those who do have a debate, who have lobbyists, are controlling a narrative that I think is just baloney. Faz Shakir, political advisor to progressive Senator Bernie Sanders and founder of More Perfect Union, an advocacy media project in Washington, D.C., thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate you giving me the time to uh, have this conversation with you, Steve. Nice to see you. Now we're going to turn to Jonathan Cott, a longtime advisor to one of the most well-known conservative Democrats, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He's now a partner at the political consultancy Capital Council. Jonathan, you know Senator Manchin uh, better than anyone else I know, other than his wife. Um, my question to you is, what does he, who is he doing battle with? Is he primarily focused on other Democrats in the party as rivals to his vision, or is he looking at Mitch McConnell and the Republicans as, as, as contenders to that vision that he has? I don't think he looks at anybody in the Senate as his rivals. I mean, I've seen him walk the halls and talk to nearly every senator. He considers almost all of them friends. He wants to work with them. He tries to find a way to work with everybody, from, you know, Ted Cruz to Elizabeth Warren. 
He teams up with them when he can. So I don't think he views anybody as, as his rivals, but he has a vision for what he thinks is best for his state of West Virginia, which is always top of mind for him, and then what he thinks is best for the country. And that may differ from a lot of Democrats, but as he always said, he's a West Virginia Democrat, not a national Democrat or a D.C. Democrat. So, so how many Democrats within the Democratic Party, because that's what we're getting at today, is really the divide in the party. How many people are with him uh, in that vision of pragmatic, centrist, some fiscal responsibility, you know, let's have infrastructure, but let's not spend the whole bank. You know, how many of the caucus are, are quietly there or overtly there versus, say, AOC's um, side of the equation or Bernie Sanders' side of the equation? I think you, there are a lot more moderate, pragmatic, centrist in the Senate than one thinks. Um, I know that those, especially in the House, those numbers have grown way out shining what the progressives have made up um, on the House side. But I think in the Senate, you probably have 20 to 25 fiscal, fiscally responsible Democrats. I would say any member who, uh, any senator who used to be a governor is always fiscally responsible because they know at the end of the day they have to pay their bills. But you also have a lot of Senate Democrats like John Tester, Chris Coons, Tom Carper, Maggie Hassan, Kevin Cortez Masto, who are in that, er in that area with him. And I think you saw that when he brought together the uh, infrastructure team that wound up getting a bill that got 69 senators to support it. That's rare in D.C. these days. Now, I would say the argument from the more liberal wing of the Democratic Party is that this is not a normal moment. This is not a time for incrementalism. This is a time when the wealth gap, the racial divides, the inequality divides have never been greater in America. We saw everything from the pandemic and how it hit the country unevenly. We now see a lot of people even denying you know, science. We saw the George Floyd murder in the aftermath of that, that something has to be done that's big. And then we have a lot of people who would be great contributors to society, but they don't have the means or wherewithal to do it because essentially too few people in the nation control most of the wealth. What does Senator Manchin value in that argument and what does he not agree with? I think he agrees with all of that. I think he thinks this is time to do big, bold things, but I also think he knows that this is going to have a lasting effect on the country. So he wants to make sure we get it right. He said in his statement the other, yesterday, we spent $5.4 trillion in the last, you know, 18 months. That's a lot of money. He wants to make sure that money is going where it's needed most, which is why today he said we have to make sure that those who need the money the most are getting it from these programs that we're passing. So he just wants to make sure we do it the right way. And he's not saying stop. He's not saying wait until three years from now. He's saying let's Take our time. There is no rush. There's no deadline. This is not another self-imposed deadline. We have time to do this, and we have time to do it right so that it's good for those who need it most for the next 20 years. So what in that argument that Joe Manchin and that you are also making um, is Senator Bernie Sanders, who's chair of the Budget Committee, was also a leading contender to, to, to be possibly be president of the United States. He lost to Joe Biden, but, but you know, he was a major player. What do you think he is not hearing? I don't know. I know that Bernie initially said he wanted a $10 trillion bill, then he wanted a $6 trillion bill, and he want, then he was okay with $3.5 trillion. I think the way Senator Manchin approaches it is, let's figure out what we need to spend money on and who needs to get it, and then we'll figure out how much it costs. Bernie Sanders has seemed to take the opposite approach of, let me just spend as much money as I can and we'll fit it in. They just have two different views on how to govern, and I don't think that's ever going to change. But when you kind of look at the explosion of the budget going on, and you look at what has happened historically with $28.43 trillion of total debt, 
Republican presidencies have contributed 62% to that amount. Democrats have contributed 38%. So my question is, most people think about Republicans as being fiscal conservative and Democrats as tax and spend. Why are Democrats so bad at marketing? I don't know, but <laughs> that stat tells you that Democrats are more fiscally responsible than Republicans. And like Senator Manchin said, he's okay spending the money. He just wants to make sure we have a way to pay for it. And I think he actually does. I mean, he wants to get rid of that Trump tax cut, which added trillions to the debt. And Republicans now all of a sudden don't want to pay for it. Look, is it a party that can put itself back together and we should paper over all of this? Or should the nation, should the citizens of the Democratic Party take this seriously and note how, uh, I mean, you, uh, will the party divide? No, I think this is a big tent party. I think that to be a governing majority, you have to have people from West Virginia and New York. Chuck Schumer is a uh, great leader for the Democrats, and that's why he has Mark Warner and Joe Manchin in leadership, and he also has Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, because he wants to listen to both sides. But here's the thing. Elizabeth Warren can't get elected in West Virginia. Joe Manchin probably couldn't get elected as a Democrat in Massachusetts. That's why we need a I big I think that's tent. probably the most true thing I, I've heard. I think that's, <laughs> that's accurate, but I think that's why we have to have a big tent party and bring everybody in, and I think the Democrats are doing that. You know, look, you, you know I know the senator, and I know uh, a lot of folks across the way, and, and when I have spent time with him, I've had other Democrats come to me and say, uh, are you going to uh, go take a shower now after, after your time with uh, uh, Senator Manchin? Um, my question is, do you think Democrats, your Democratic Party friends, understand that, that Bernie Sanders would not be chair of the Budget Committee if you did not have that seat in West Virginia? that you would not have and control all, all, you know, both houses of Congress and the White House, probably, if you did not have a, uh, a, a person in that seat. That the fragility of presence means you have a fragility of presence. And that means that that one vote gives you a lot of other opportunities to put your story, to put your aspirations in front of the U.S. citizens, and then see how they're going to go with it. That, that I just find it interesting that that many Democrats are willing to say with regards to Senator Sinema of Arizona, Senator Manchin, that they're not real Democrats, so we don't want them, and accept defeat or even accept the split Congress. Is that what you find out there? I think there are a lot of Democrats who take that approach. I think it's a lot in the progressive community would like to purge the party of a lot of moderates. But as a Democrat, I like to win. And I like to be in the majority because it means you get to govern and actually pass your priorities. I am much happier when Democrats have 50 or more votes in the Senate and Mitch McConnell is not dictating the Senate schedule than I am this way. So I, I hope they understand that to govern, you, you need to lead and have a big party. And these people are all in the party. Joe Manchin's been a Democrat his entire life. Before some of these progressives were even born, mm. he's been fighting for the same principles in the people of West Virginia, and he's going to continue to do it for a number of years. Well, Jonathan Cott, long-term friend, uh, advisor, and former communications director for Senator Joe Manchin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So what's the bottom line? Now that the Democrats are in power, they control it all. But they can't take full advantage of that power because they're really super divided about how socialist they want to be. Some say that America's deeply divided society, with its huge wealth and inequality gaps that fall along racial divides, need a bold fix now. Others argue that the cost of that shift will undermine the nation's economic standing. 
So should they just put their foot on the gas and go bold, or should they hold back? By the way, the Republicans didn't hold back when they were in power. No matter what happens with the internal Democratic Party fights on how to transform American society, the really big political battles are going to be within the parties, not between them. Democrat versus Democrat and Republican versus Republican. And that's the bottom line.